Good afternoon. Um, I'm Hussein Haqqani, uh, Director for South and Central Asia here at the Hudson Institute. Welcome to <laughs> Hudson. Um, for the last four decades, Afghanistan and its citizens have lived through civil war, instability, and an unending terrorist insurgency. It's been a year since President Trump announced his Afghanistan and South Asia strategy. Uh, 17 years after American-led international forces went into Afghanistan in the aftermath of 9-11 uh, to eliminate Al-Qaeda sanctuary provided by the brutal Taliban regime, there is talk once again about the need for a peaceful end to the conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, in the last six months, President Ashraf Ghani has twice announced ceasefires for talks with the Afghan Taliban. The Taliban accepted the ceasefire at the end of Ramadan, but this time around, they rejected the government's offer of a conditional ceasefire. Uh, there is a round of talks taking place in Moscow, sponsored by the Russian government, which the United States today announced it would not be attending. Uh, the Afghan government already has no intention of attending them on grounds that um, the future of Afghanistan needs to be determined in an intra-Afghan process, uh, not one that is sponsored uh, by Moscow. Now, one understands the demands of domestic politics in the United States. It was domestic politics that uh, led President Obama to announce a uh, schedule for withdrawal of troops after uh, injecting them into Afghanistan in a significant number, which some of us have argued actually get, gave a fillip uh, to the Taliban. The Taliban have a maxim that uh, we have, uh, the Americans have the watches, we have the time, and with an attitude like that, giving them a deadline actually helped them only calculate how long they had to wait the Americans out. President Trump's approach has been different. Now, we all know that talks with adversaries can be productive, but we should not forget the history of such talks with the Afghan Taliban going back to the 1990s. Unlike most states or political groups, the Taliban have proved to be a relatively uh, difficult uh, group to negotiate with. Uh, they have an absolutist ideology and often say that they are unlikely to compromise easily on their deeply held beliefs. Uh, recently, we've also seen the Taliban becoming more aggressive and a series of attacks launched on the uh, Afghan city of Ghazni. As if all of that was not complicated enough, there is also the role of Pakistan in the Afghan conflict. Uh, Pakistan denies flatly that it provides safe haven for the Afghan Taliban, and it has a list, list of its own grievances, both against the United States and the government of Afghanistan. The US says it is mindful of Pakistan's legitimate interests in Afghanistan, but there is little clarity over the detail of what those legitimate interests might be. Uh, can Pakistan be a helpful actor in bringing peace to Afghanistan uh, when nobody has clarity about what it actually wants there? And if American and Afghan officials believe its denials of non-complicity in violence in Afghanistan to be untrue. So what are the policy choices for the United States? Uh, we will be discussing that today and also how might this conflict end? Is it just one of those situations where the United States can or should declare victory and leave? 
Is it really America's Vietnam again? Or is it actually a, a, an arena where the United States has already made a positive contribution, has not had the kind of damage that, say, for example, the debilitating Vietnam conflict had, and where success should not be measured in the number of years that have been put in, but in terms of the achievement of the goals that had been set uh, by the United States. That is going to be what we are going to try and discuss with our panelists. Uh, to my left is Ambassador Omar Samad, former ambassador of Afghanistan to France and Canada, and CEO of Silk Road Consulting. Uh, from December 2014 to January 2016, Ambassador Omar worked as senior advisor for policy and strategy uh, to the chief executive of Afghanistan in Kabul. He was senior Central Asia fellow at the New America Foundation in 2013 and 2014, and senior Afghan expert at the United States Institute of Peace from 2012 to 2013. To my right is, not necessarily politically, uh, to, my, uh, to my right is uh, Mr. David Sedney, former president of American University of Afghanistan and senior associate of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, David has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia from 2009 to 2013, and as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia from 2007 to 2009. He is widely seen as a friend of the Afghan people. He was Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, Kabul, and Baku, and he was also detailed twice to the National Security Council. So let's begin our discussion, gentlemen. And my first question to you, Ambassador Samad, is um, 17 years. People who just count time or measure everything by time would say, that's a long time. It's one of America's longest overseas uh, engagements, involvements, uh, especially involving large numbers of troops. What has been accomplished in these 17 years, if anything? Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. Uh, and for everybody showing up. Uh, 17 years on, uh, Ambassador, I think that there is uh, a balance sheet. I think there's a positive side, and there are some negative aspects to it. One can't uh, paint it all rosy, uh, neither can you play, paint it all black either. So as someone who you know, has been dealing with Afghanistan, my country's um, uh, issues since the late 70s, early 80s, uh, what happened post 9-11 obviously was, had a very deep impact, not only on Afghanistan, but in regards to the region, in regards to relationships between other countries. But the reason why the United States went into Afghanistan, and we are now 17 years on discussing it, is, was terrorism. And if you look back and you ask the question, have we been successful, have we been failing? I would say that on that score, we are very successful. But the job is not completed, and it continues. And I think that we have a huge challenge uh, with new players, new names at least, new brands that are, are on the scene, uh, strategies that are shifting uh, at the regional level, and maybe even globally we see 
great power rivalries also impacting what is happening in Afghanistan in so many ways. Uh, so, so, so from a ter from a fight against terrorism point of view, I would say I would give it a plus. But the job has to continue, and we need to get to the root of this. And I think that's what the Afghan people want. Now, obviously, I can talk to you about education, healthcare. I can talk to you about women's rights. I can talk to you about uh, uh, infrastructure. I can talk to you about connectivity, regional, so on and so forth, and give you statistics. And I think everybody has heard that, and I'm not going to waste time on that. Uh, but what I do want to say is that at this juncture, we are once again at a crossroad. And by that, I mean that um, Afghanistan, if you go back about 40 years or so, the first time that we were jolted by a coup in 1978 when the communists backed by the Soviets and then the Soviets invaded, you, you see a pattern developing. Every time that Afghanistan has gone through a transition of sorts, you see that, the, the, that there are two factors that have played a, an important role. And, and whether it's in 1978 itself, 1989 when the Soviets left, 1992 when the Najib communist regime fell, 1996 when the Taliban took Kabul, 2001 when the Taliban were ousted, and then again, to some extent, 2014 when you had the major political as well as security transition taking place, which ended the combat mission in Afghanistan, and also saw elections taking place at the end of the Karzai era. The two factors that I think you can detect in all of this from an Afghan perspective and looking at history, uh, first of all, there is a fragility component to it. Fragility meaning uh, inherent to what is happening in Afghanistan. In 1978, the Daoud government fell because of a certain level of mismanagement and not being on top of the situation. Otherwise, that communist coup should not have succeeded. It should have failed. So that fragility or weakness, structural or, however, or governance-wise, that you see coming up over and over in Afghanistan has played a role. And that is why Afghans have to take stock, and Afghans have to deal with it, and they have to correct this, and they have to learn from their history. The second thing that complements it is the fact that there's always some kind of external factor. And the external, if you again go back to these dates, you will find an external factor. The external factor at times can be productive and constructive and positive, and sometimes it has been very negative and destructive for Afghanistan and maybe even beyond Afghanistan. So these two factors, in my opinion, in Afghanistan uh, have played a major role and continue to play a role. And this is why today, as we are sitting here, we need to look at both. How fragile is Afghanistan today? Why is it fragile? Where are the fault lines? Where are the weaknesses? And what needs to be done? And we keep asking that question. I know every time there's a review or every time there is a policy shift, we ask those questions. I'm not sure if we ever found the right answers. We found partial answers. But I think that we need to do a better job of finding the right answers to these two issues that have damaged and hurt Afghanistan, and as a result, have hurt others as far away as the United States. Ambassador Samad, uh, just to follow up, you, you mentioned the fragility. You mentioned external factors. Um, I 
discern a little diplo speak here. Uh, try and unpack it for us. What are these fragilities? And uh, what is your opinion of why it has been so difficult to identify them correct, correctly that they resurface with alarming yeah. regularity? First and foremost, it is the responsibility of Afghans and Afghan, the Afghan elite and the political elite and the economic elite whether it was back in 78 or whether it was in the 90s or later on to, to, to address this issue. We think that others have been very generous, very helpful in trying to uh, I help us identify and deal with these issues. Now, I'll give you a few examples. As I said, for example, the Dawood government failed through probably bad management to prevent that coup from taking place. In 1989, we saw that the, the, the Soviets left. The Soviet, I mean, that was a huge campaign that had been unleashed in Afghanistan, on one hand trying to dislodge the Soviets, on the other hand, the Soviets trying to stay and then realizing that they needed to leave and they needed some breathing space. And that in 1992, Najib's government fell because it had no, no legs to stand on anymore. And, and so the, the domestic issues plus the external factors that helped the Mujahideen push the, Soviet, the uh, Najib government out of power played that critical role. The same later on, and I'll give you, for example, uh, 96. 96, Afghanistan's problem was that, Afghanistan's problem was that a, a number of factions couldn't agree on setting up the right government in Afghanistan. And Is they, that applicable today? I mean, so, so we can come to today. But, but you saw these armed factions who, who, who were you know, at each other's throat. But we all know that many of these factions were beholden to regional players. And they were, so, the, so the external factor comes into play and makes it worse for Afghans. OK. Um, David Sidney, um, why is America in Afghanistan? Should it stay? And if so, why? Well, I would <clears throat> very much echo what Ambassador Ustamad just said in terms of why are we there. It was the attack on the United States on 9-11 that came out of Afghanistan, came out of a situation in Afghanistan uh, that the United States had helped create. And we were right to go back in in 2002. But I would say we, were, we made a lot of mistakes between then and now. I'm going to <clears throat> diverge into history just one more time, uh, Ambassador. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pull you all into the contemporary okay. uh, era pretty soon because history lessons are good. But you know, I've been in America long enough to know that discussing history is not something Americans really like. Americans, Americans don't like it. <laughs> Americans don't like it. Americans don't do it. But history does matter. Absolutely, absolutely. History does determine, and actions that are taken and actions that are not taken uh, in the past continue to have reverberations today. Um, I was actually in the White House Situation Room in, uh, I guess it was February of 1989, uh, as a duty officer there, when the last Soviet troops left and the Soviet general, I forget his name, Gromov, uh, was the last one to walk across the, the bridge. And all these people who had been working in the Reagan administration beforehand, and then it was by then it was the Bush administration, came down to the Situation Room and they were all high-fiving and and uh, all enthusiastic, and they all said, Afghanistan is over, now we're going to switch our attention somewhere else. And that's what we did. 
And as many people have said, including my former boss, uh, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, we paid a price for that, and we're still paying a price for that. We're also paying a price, this is my last historical thing, but it goes into present day politics. We also pay a price for doing things badly. In 2001 and two, when we went into Afghanistan, there was a clean slate. We could have helped the Afghans remake their society, but we chose not to. Many people talk about the US nation building effort in Afghanistan. I was there. We didn't do nation building. We had a president, President Bush, who was against nation building. We didn't put the resources in. Um, the US budget for Afghanistan in 2002, put forward by President Bush, was, it's always a good question to ask people because they don't believe it, $1 million. We just got rid of the Taliban, and then we had, a, we had all kinds of ideas about what was going to happen in Afghanistan, and we decided to spend $1 million uh, to do it. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, President Bush got drawn into sort of nation building. President Obama, as uh, was mentioned earlier, made a decision to put additional troops into Afghanistan, but at the same time made the horrible decision to set a deadline, thereby giving the Taliban a deadline uh, as to how long they had to fight before they were going to win. And that continued to 2014. Um, so why is the United States still in Afghanistan? In my view, we're still in Afghanistan because we've done it wrong so much. Why do we need to stay? Because the dangers from Afghanistan that were evident in uh, the attack on the World Trade Center and in other uh, actions that, that, that can come from Afghanistan, we need to be there for that reason. And, and this is something Americans hate to say, we, I believe we have a historical responsibility because of the huge mistakes we've made in the 1980s and 89, uh, in that original abandoning of Afghanistan, and in uh, setting up a whole series of policies that essentially gave um, uh, succor, gave, uh, gave encouragement to the Taliban, that if they could outweigh us, if they had the time, as Ambassador Khani said, they would win. Now, where are we now? We're still there. That is something that I give a huge amount of credit uh, to uh, President Trump and the current administration. Uh, they, against a lot of pressure, they switched from a time-based to a conditions-based strategy. They also recognized that the centrality of Pakistan to the issue and put stronger and longer-lasting sanctions and uh, uh, took more action against Pakistan uh, for its refusal to work in a positive way on Afghanistan than any other administration had done uh, in the previous 16 years. Now, the Pakistanis have seen that before. I was in the Department of Defense, and we put sanctions. We held back a coalition support funds, which is about a billion dollars a year, several times for a period of months. But we always backed off. The United States always stood down. Lesson the Pakistanis learned, you can outweigh the US. So what we're doing right now needs to be continued. <clears throat> that pressure on Pakistan needs to be continued. The additional forces that are there that are not fighting, that are doing advising, uh, doing intelligence, uh, doing air support, they're actually uh, making a, a big positive difference. So I think that uh, where we are today uh, is very unfortunately the result of a number of mistakes we've made both in our national interest and for our national dignity, we need to stay. Now, there's a lot of things happening today, and I know we're going to get into them, Ambassador Khani, with uh, potential peace talks, um, uh, events on the ground. But I'm going to close uh, this, little, this little introductory part with uh, why I am still involved in Afghanistan 17 uh, years or 18 years after I first started working on it uh, in, the, uh, in the Bush administration. And that comes from my time as acting president of the American University in Afghanistan. It's Afghanistan's young people. 
I have met not, not just tens, not just scores, not just hundreds, but I've actually met thousands of young Afghans whose lives and worldview and perspectives have changed. The Afghanistan today is not the Afghanistan of 15 years ago or 30 years ago. It still has, unfortunately, uh, the vestiges of a lot of that, and those vestiges are incredibly powerful. There are, are warlords. There are uh, uh, incredibly abusive people who are still in, in positions of power. They need to be replaced by, by the Afghans themselves, not by the United States. But those young people, they are not going to um, have the Taliban come back. They are going to remake their society. And the United States can be a, a part of that, a positive part of that, even more than we have been, and that's what I believe we should be doing. Or we can stand in the way, and the result would be more bloodshed, more, more, more turmoil, and a greater threat to the U.S. in the future. Okay. Um, now, uh, there's, you know, politics always has cliches, and one of the big cliches I've been hearing a lot, especially since President Trump's uh, uh, sort of South Asia policy was unveiled a year ago, is, well, all end, wars end with peace talks. So... This one has to end with peace talks, too. Now, that's not my personal view, by the way. I'm one of those who believe that some wars do end because somebody wins them decisively. Uh, and then the peace talks are just the terms of surrender of, the, of one side or the other. Uh, but there are those who think that, you know, there needs to be a process and a peace process. And I think that there is nothing wrong. I don't think either one of you will disagree with that, that if there can be a peace process. Um, both of you. How amenable do you think the Taliban are uh, to peace talks? Just before you uh, answer my question, uh, soon after the an announcement of the second conditional ceasefire, Secretary Pompeo issued a statement, and it said, the United States welcomes the announcement by the Afghan government of a ceasefire conditioned on Taliban participation. This plan responds to the clear and continued call of the Afghan people for peace. There is definitely a peace movement in Afghanistan. You will agree with me on that, Ambassador Samad. Uh, he also said, the last ceasefire in Afghanistan revealed the deep desire of the Afghan people to end the conflict, and we hope another ceasefire will move the country closer to sustainable security. Well, we saw that that second ceasefire did not materialize the way it had been expected. Um, now, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs, Ambassador Alice Wells, uh, said in early July, you have an international community consensus that the Taliban leadership must engage with the Afghan government. An international community consensus, basically saying we want them to engage. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't engage with us, meaning the United States, and we wouldn't engage with them in support of a peace process. That's ultimately between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Subsequently, there have been statements on the American side that if the Taliban want to talk to us directly, we are happy to have those talks as well. Why has it proved so difficult since 1994 when the Taliban first rose to prominence to actually talk peace with them. I have my own views, which I will state after the two of you have stated yours, but what do you think? And do you think that there is better prospect this time? Well, uh, you're absolutely correct. I, I think that uh, we, we can go back and look and see that in the 1990s, there were attempts at uh, resolving the Afghan issue amongst Afghans. I mean, nobody else was really involved. I mean, yes, they were, they were involved indirectly, but nobody was directly involved. And it never materialized. It never worked out. Since 2000. Seven, eight, we are, we are seriously engaged in pursuing 
peace talks with the Taliban. So we are again, we have spent at least 12, 13 years now, once again, um, 10, 12 years in uh, trying to uh, start or even talk about talks. It hasn't really materialized. I mean, we have an office in Doha with a few Taliban who've been there for a few years now, and that office seems to be a political office that is supposed to be engaging or be engaged by others into talking with Taliban representatives. I'm not even sure to what extent the gentlemen who are in Doha are directly connected to today's leadership or decision-making bodies of the Taliban, whether in Kuwaita or Peshawar or anywhere else or inside Afghanistan. I'm not exactly sure. And, and that, is, that, that is being verified right now uh, 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 by, by those who want to engage with new talks. Now, how amenable are the Taliban? I think it depends on several uh, conditions and factors. One being, uh, the, first I think the question has to be answered as to what do they really want? I mean, how can you engage someone if you don't have an idea of what is it that they are seeking? Do they want a return to a Taliban-type government in Afghanistan? Do they want to be part of a power-sharing arrangement where they have a, a certain percentage in mind of, of, uh, of influence and power? Uh, do they want to uh, you know, be part of the political process that we have known since 2004 with a constitution that works somewhat well at times and maybe not so well at other times, but at least ha has created a, a constitutional order in Afghanistan? Do they, want, do they believe in that or do they not believe in that? Are we going to be um, uh, having to discuss another parley a la bonne as, as it happened in 2001 after the Taliban were ousted? Do we need a bond too, for example? That is a question that is being asked. A bond too would include the Taliban rather than so, what happened in bond one when they were completely excluded. Exactly. They were excluded and Hezbi Islami Hekmatyar was excluded because they were still fighting. And they, 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 and there are other reasons, there are all kinds of reasons, but they were, they were, they were still engaged in fighting and they did not, uh, and nobody else had the appetite to, they, and they, everybody thought that they were defeated. So why invite them? And, and so, so is there a bond too that is necessary? Is there a need for an interim transitional type of government that would um, provide the means and, and set the, the stage for uh, the return of the Taliban in one fashion or another into in, in Afghanistan and then, in, and then maybe uh, induce them and uh, introduce them into governance at some levels, maybe, maybe at the provincial level or district level. We, we don't have any answer for any of this. So there is so much that needs to be explored at this point. And I think that what the Americans are doing, hopefully, is exploring these questions and trying to see if there's an appetite. Ambassador Wells uh, said, uh, and a very important thing, she said, I think the problem or frustration that the international community has is that the Taliban have never put forward empowered leaders to drive political negotiations. Uh, usually, if somebody is serious about negotiations, you do appoint somebody who can be taken seriously as, as, as a negotiator on your behalf. If you are deliberately sending forth people who will keep engaging, but not necessarily empowered to make some kind of agreement, uh, then you may actually be, string, well, to, to use the common expression, stringing the other side along. 
Do you think that's happening in this case, uh, uh, David? And if not, is it that the enthusiasm for talks is greater on the American side because of political reasons here than it is on the Taliban side? And lastly, is it a good idea for the Americans to show excessive eagerness for talks at a time when the Taliban's could interpret it as a sign of weakness? I would have agreed with the um, basis underlying your question uh, a few months ago, but I, some things have changed in Afghanistan and changed, um, have changed my thinking um, in terms of the utility of talks. First of all, if you look at insurgencies, leaving aside wars at large, but insurgencies where an outside, where a domestic force is trying to topple an existing government, um, you'll see that uh, in some insurgencies have ended through talks. Others, as Ambassador Connie has said, ended with victory for one side or the other. And in those uh, insurgencies, talks have often been used <clears throat> as tactics towards an overall victory. So sometimes talks are really talks, and other times they're just a tactic to achieve military and political victory. And discerning that is really hard because you very rarely have great deal of insight into the insurgents' uh, decision-making uh, structures. And that's the case with the Taliban. Uh, we don't really understand much about the Taliban. It's important to remember that this is an organization that kept secret the death of its, of its uh, uh, top leader, Mullah Omar, for three years. He was dead for three years, and they continued to pretend he was still there. Uh, they clearly had the ability to carry out deception. They clearly had the ability to, to trick people. And they had the ability to keep, um, to keep fighting, even with the loss of their paramount leader. Many people thought that once Mullah Omar died, the Taliban would fall apart. It hasn't, and it's had two, two leaders since then. Uh, so in answer to your question, um, are the Taliban serious? That part of your question, uh, I think it's very hard to say. I think, given the past experience that Ambassador Samad mentioned, uh, the presumption up until now has been that they're not serious, that, they're, that they have been using talks, and they had a whole series of talks with the U.S. One thing you'll read in the press is that, uh, is that uh, the Taliban are seeking direct talks with the U.S. I was in the U.S. government uh, in the period 2009 to 2013. We had a lot of direct talks with the Taliban. Uh, that's already happened. Um, and it's described in books by Steve Cole and Ahmed Rashid. They, they go into the real details of what food people ate when they were doing the talks, for example. So we've had direct talks. Wouldn't have been before. that difficult to dis determine what food they had. It had to be kebabs and 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 naans <clears throat> if it was the actually Taliban. when they went to Germany to uh, to Ambassador Steiner's home, they had some good German food prepared by his mother. Apparently. Wow. So anyhow, according, at least according to Ahmed Rashid. If I had been in the room, I would have told the, uh, the Western side, these guys aren't really authentic Taliban, <laughs> based, on their, based on their cuisine choice. But what has changed, uh, I mentioned things have changed, was uh, the response to the, what I think was really a tactical move on the part of President Ghani, um, uh, offer of a, of a ceasefire uh, at Eid back in June. That ceasefire was surprisingly successful on both sides. And it was successful uh, with the population at large. It was, pop it was successful with um, ordinary um, and, and mid-level fighters and commanders. Um, and it was so successful that it frightened the Taliban leadership. Um, in talking to people who are in close touch with the Taliban, 
Uh, they tell me that when the Taliban leaders saw their fighters going into Afghan villages and towns and cities, putting flowers in their hair, taking selfies with Afghan soldiers, um, talking about how they wanted peace as well, uh, that, was a, that was startling to them. But also in the Afghan people themselves, not just the young people, but, but especially among the young people, the desire for peace had a real spark. Even before that, there was the Afghan peace movement that Ambassador Haqqani mentioned. That's continued to gain strength. This is a grassroots uh, peace movement that has sprung up really um, uh, on its own throughout the country in, uh, uh, that's critical of all those involved in the war, whether it's the US, the international community, the Afghan government, and the Taliban, and Daesh, anyone who's killing Afghans. Uh, that political movement right now is very inchoate. No one has seized leadership of it. It hasn't had uh, a determinative effect, but I think it could start to. So I think both the Afghan government and the Taliban are reacting to that. So that's what gives me hopes that perhaps those talks, even if sometimes the US has been overeager, as you mentioned, Ambassador Khani, perhaps those talks could lead to something. Because in the end, the Taliban are a political organization. Uh, all insurgencies are. Uh, they can't go too far away from the beliefs of those who are supporting them and fighting for them. Now, they have an advantage. I mentioned Pakistan before. They have a uh, sanctuary in Pakistan. That's where their leadership is. That's where their funds are. That's where they get all their weapons and their ammunition and explosives all come out of Pakistan. As long as they have that, they have a great um, uh, incentive to try and act in accordance with Pakistani wishes. And there we go back to a fundamental question that you and I and others have discussed along. I'm not sure that the question really is what do the Taliban want. The question may well be what does Pakistan want? Uh, and the Taliban, because I think the Taliban have to adapt themselves, not follow the Pakistani lead 100% in everything, but adapt themselves to what Pakistan wants. So it's a very complex situation. Talks should go forward. Let's see what it results. But at the same time, we have to be very careful not to say talks are the only answer. Uh, because uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the kinds of mistakes that we have made, unfortunately, lay the groundwork for a long time continuing conflict. Uh, people talk about Northern Ireland. Um, the Northern Ireland civil conflict lasted about 500 years. Um, and I'm not predicting the Afghan conflict will at, at last that long. But deep-seated divisions, questions such as Ambassador Samad raised, they often take a lot of time, effort, and suffering before there's an end to them. Can I, can I just jump in one second and say, uh, you know, I think that at the highest levels of decision making within a Taliban body that we don't really know very well over the years, where strategic interests are involved, uh, I don't think you have too many Taliban leaders who, uh, whose opinion really matters that much. And you're absolutely right. It's what Pakistan wants primarily that matters and has mattered since the 1990s. And nowadays, maybe a few other countries' opinions matter to some extent. But if you go back down to the village level in Afghanistan, where the Taliban are fighting for some reason or another, injustice or maybe corruption or uh, some, you know, somebody uh, being hurt for no reason, I think at that level, they don't really care that much about what the strategic part is thinking or doing. And then there's a third middle of the road, sort of, you know, those who are in the middle, the middlemen who make it happen, who, who create and facilitate the, the, the relationship between the strategic part and the tactical part at the village level. 
or, or the local level. And so the guy at the local level may be tired of war. And, and so, so that, that person may want to go into the city and eat ice cream and sit down with others and chit-chat. And put flowers in the... And put in the, flowers, yeah. And the cap uh, of the... But, but and that is why we, we've heard that the leadership wasn't happy about this. So you see the dichotomy very clearly, and that is a reality that we cannot ignore. Mr. Ambassador Samad mentioned one thing, and you asked us to be specific, and uh, that, that really destabilizing factor that has been added to the mix over the last three or four years is Russia. Uh, the Russians, according to very direct statements by the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense, Russians have been providing arms and supplies to the Taliban. Uh, this uh, so-called peace conference that they're holding in Moscow will make peace less likely, not more likely. Uh, from all indications that I've seen, my analysis is the Russians see Afghanistan as a place where they can make trouble for the U.S., and they're doing so. And uh, that is going to make any kind of a peace agreement more difficult, not less difficult. And uh, it's, a, it's a fairly new factor, and I'm not sure that anyone is really equipped to handle it at this current time. Well, uh, both of you kind of raised the question of what does Pakistan want. Uh, since I'm the only Pakistani on the panel, uh, I'm probably best suited to not answer the question. Uh, so can either one of you try and educate me and the, and the audience <laughs> on what does Pakistan want in Afghanistan? Now, there is the question of legitimate interests that everybody says. One can understand it would be a legitimate interest for a country to say that there should not be any basis of a, uh, of a power that it considers hostile to it on that country, fair enough, or that there shouldn't be troops from another country, uh, be, uh, that that could uh, jeopardize its security, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But in this case, it's kind of a moving target, isn't it, as to what is exactly Pakistan's concern. So. Does either one of you suspect that basically there is something that Pakistan wants that is not publicly stated and has not been publicly stated since the collapse of the, uh, of the uh, Najib government in 1992? Want to go first? Well, since I'm the one who's perhaps least knowledgeable about Pakistan, I guess I get to go first. Um, but. Uh, that's the subject. The question that Ambassador Khani raised is one that's been debated at the top level, middle level, low levels inside the U.S. government uh, ad infinitum. Uh, I've been in discussions in the Situation Room with the very top decision makers of the U.S., uh, colloquia with experts about Pakistan asking that same question. And um, the, the answers are still not clear, but uh, I think there are several factors that are important to, put it, to keep in mind. The first is and this goes into a more fundamental question, is what is Pakistan? Why is there a Pakistan? And what role does the Pakistani military, and when I say military, I include the intelligence services. People sometimes make a distinction between the ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, and the military. They're the same. So I'm just going to say the military, but I mean all of these uh, organizations. Um, the role that they play in the, in the continued formation of a state that is still really, really young, I mean, the Afghan state can point to origins well much earlier than the, the Pakistani state does. And a state that has been um, uh, governed, molded by these military forces, a uh, succession of coups, influence, bill, influence, uh, influence uh, uh, efforts. Um, uh, we can go, go into all that. But if the Pakistani state is about the survival of the military and intelligence institutions, 
and anyone who's ever been on a Pakistani military base and see how the military officers live and their education facilities and all will see that they have a pretty good life. Um, if, if, the, if the Pakistani state is about this, the continuation of these organizations, then that's a whole different question about what they're doing in Afghanistan and all that, because it could be, and one reason why this might be so difficult to solve, that the Pakistani uh, so-called deep state or intelligence military state, whatever you want to call it, its number one, instant, its number one interest is its own survival. And in that case, the use of Afghanistan as a rallying place, as a place to put pressure on not just Afghans, but also on Pakistanis who don't believe uh, that the military should play this role, it can become very complex. And that's what I'll close. It's a complex place. I've laid out one theory. Ambassador Khani, I'm sure you have much more depth than I do, and Ambassador Samad as well. So. Well, Ambassador Samad. Afghans have no view on this at all. But, but, but you know, or, everyone or, or has. Or you it. guys, or you guys have a lot of views that you don't. There, we just, we just, we just probably um, we have a too much, too long of a list. I, I think, I think the issue goes for some Pakistanis. I was actually once told in Islamabad that uh, one of the reasons why Pakistan uh, is has resentments towards Afghanistan is that we were the only country to vote against. Uh, their uh, participation in their 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 membership mm -hmm. membership at the United UN. Nations in 1948. Although you changed your vote, and you're days, absolutely correct. And I told later, them, yeah. I told them that there was a technicality, and I know the story very well because I come from a diplomatic family, and I know the story for a fact that there was a technicality between our ambassador in London and our envoy in New York, and Kabul, and that caused a delay, and. And the ambassador here thought that he had to vote against Pakistan, Pakistan's membership. And the day, and 24 hours later, he, he received word from Kabul saying, "No, do not vote against membership." And when he went back to change it, it was too late. But, but, but Ambassador Samad, this I mean, is, we this both is, know. We both know. This is now. That this yeah. is one of those things you tell school children yes. that you know this so, country is our enemy because they didn't because vote of this. The UN. But that's not really what it is. After so we all, have, we have had diplomatic relations. Yes, yes. We were hosts to millions of Afghans. Yes. Uh, at least hundreds of thousands of Pakistanis are intermarried with Afghans. Yes. Uh, including with very prominent families, uh, diplomatic families, political families, uh, a very large number of Pakistanis, uh, those who are ethnic Pashtuns, uh, they share a language sure. uh, and culturally have always had much more in common uh, with, say, for a, for, for a Pashtun in Pakistan, there is much more cultural commonality with uh, somebody in Afghanistan, a Pashtun in Afghanistan, than there is with, say, a Mahajir like myself from Karachi. So, I mean, yeah, the, so, that's so, far-fetched. So, so let's, try and, let's try and unpack so, it for the audience and for everybody. So you have, what you exactly have, is at stake here so, for them? So for Afghans, I mean, it, it has become an enigma as well, because they want to know exactly what is causing this. They know that o over, over the years, there's been the issue of the Pashtun and Baluch nationalists. Uh, uh, and I think has, the Afghans should make it very clear that they will not support And And, 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 and Afghans have to find a yeah. formula for that and a solution yeah. for that. Again, that is, as an Afghan, I will say it very clearly that we need uh, a solution to find a, the right solution in order to put this to rest. Similarly, the, those Afghans who still question the validity of the Durand line, even though legally the Afghan government accepted as, as, it at the border, as the border between Pakistan and so, Afghanistan. So that, that is... Those things are only symbolic and they need to be settled. 
So, so the, the, uh, Afghanistan has to go through a process of resolving those historical issues and, and putting an end to it. Uh, how this will be done, when it will be done, is another question. Because as long as we have these other irritants that continue to bleed Afghanistan, I don't think there's any but Supporting the Taliban would still not solve any of Pakistan's problems, theoretically at least, because the Taliban would have already spawned a Pakistani Taliban, which is a huge threat to Pakistan itself. So therefore, could it be one of two things? And I'm not taking a position here. I'm just stating the two things. One is the Pakistanis say we have nothing to do with any of this. This is just everybody else in the world thinks we do, but the world is imagining something. And, uh, and, and, and the evidence that you people keep finding is all wrong, uh, including the evidence of several dead bodies from the recent fighting in Ghazni being transported for burial in Pakistan uh, of, of, of Pakistanis. Uh, who joined the fight. Uh, it could be true, theoretically. And then there is the other part, which is that maybe Pakistan does not want to acknowledge its, what it really wants for the simple reason that it actually it suits it, that this whole process drags out, that peace talks keep going on. And just as it happened in uh, sort of 1992, remember, with the, with the attempt of Hikmatyar trying to take over Kabul, which was foiled by Masood, uh, which was backed by the ISI, duly documented by Steve Cole in both his books. Um, the, it was, let's, let's present the world with a faith accompli. Similarly with the Taliban, they got Kandahar, and, 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 and then they presented the world with a faith accompli. Once they had taken over Kabul, that's it. And and is that a possible uh, uh, interest here? Because the more I have studied this question, I have found that President Musharraf, in immediately after 9-11, didn't really expect the Americans to stay in Afghanistan for a very long time. So that's why he facilitated the whole operation. So his expectation was, they'll be gone in a few months. We will be back to being able to have Afghanistan as our backyard. And that's been denied to them by the 17 years. And so maybe playing to the American tendency of counting everything in years and saying 17 years, no result, let's move on, um, is, is, is perhaps a part of that exercise. So both, both questions. Pakistan really is doing nothing. And Pakistan is all doing it with a grand design of actually presenting everybody with a faith accompli. Oh, gosh, what could we do? And now the Taliban have taken Afghanistan back. We have to deal with them. They are our next door neighbor. The Amir of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is now welcome to appoint an ambassador in Islamabad. Which one do you think is more plausible? Uh, Talk about a trick question. Go ahead, ahead Ambassador. Right. No, I, I just wanted to finish my, my, my and I, I will come back to yours too. But I, I think that the other topic that keeps coming up, at least on the Pakistani side, uh, is India. And, and Afghans have done everything possible to tell the world in Pakistanis that our relationship with India, first of all, is a historic relationship, goes back hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, there's proximity between, between these two countries that exist, and that there is no threat from Afghanistan to Pakistan. And if there is any evidence, that we would like to see the evidence. And, and to this day, as far as I know, uh, any concrete uh, uh, evidence or credible evidence has not been provided. 
to the state. So that's one issue. The, the last item that comes up in, in the Afghan psyche is the fact that Pakistan has certain designs in the region, strategic designs, and that's part of its geostrategic uh, agenda in order to be able to expand in that direction. And there, Afghans think that uh, for them, in order to control the tribal regions, the Pashtun tribal regions and the Baluch uh, tribes, they feel, they feel that Pakistan wants to at least have as much influence as possible in the tribal regions of Afghanistan in order to be able to have some type of hegemony of some sort on the Pashtuns in Baluch that live in that area. And then this whole issue of Talibanism comes up, is, and, and, and we have seen how Pakistan has done everything possible to eliminate traditional Pashtun culture and replace it with extremist, radicalized Islam and, and, and introduce it in the tribal region. Okay. Um, any comments? S several, but um, let me start with the um, issue of what Pakistan, and by this case, when I say, when I say Pakistan, I don't mean 90% of Pakistanis. Yeah. I don't mean the educated elite who've been who, who many of you know, and some of you in the audience may be people uh, who are who are not part of the military uh, uh, complex that I mentioned before. But those people who are in charge of Pakistan uh, on, the, on the military security side, they look back at the time when the Islamic Emirate uh, was in charge in Afghanistan as the best relationship they had with Afghanistan over the course of the, the entire existence of the Pakistani state. I've talked to them. That's what, they, that's what these people believe. That was the best outcome. So is that achievable now? I think some of them have doubts. But going back to your question, what would they like, the scenario you laid out, that the Islamic Emirate comes back, that would be fully satisfactory to them. Um, the um, corollary to that is, uh, is, I think, plays into what Ambassador Samad said. One of the most interesting movements in Pakistan over the last six uh, months or so is, um, is the movement of Pashtuns who are seeking to get respect, primarily young Pashtuns, who are saying that the Pakistani government, Pakistani ruling authorities have done along the lines of what Ambassador Samad has said, things that make them less than full citizens. Even at the same time, there's been some devolution of power uh, and the, uh, the very strong repression that this movement, uh, Pakistani Tamafuz. Uh, Pashtun Tahafuz movement, protection of the Pashtuns, the movement for the protection of Pashtuns, PTM. But the, the very strong uh, repression that the people who are in this movement have encountered, I think shows how important this issue of Pashtun identity is to those who are in charge in Pakistan. I think it's going to be by way of introducing the audience to the level of repression, the Pashtun Tahfuz movement cannot be mentioned on Pakistani television, uh, even though Pakistani television is now by and large diverse and private channels, many, many channels, their rallies, their meetings, etc., cannot be covered. Uh, and 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 the Pakistani media has a lot of uh, censorship when it comes to the Pashtun Tahfuz movement, the PTM. And but you tie this in with the fact that the uh, Pakistani military, is rightly proud of the military operations it's carried out over the last six years to essentially 
defang, marginalize, push out the Pakistani Taliban from the areas that they were controlling uh, 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Uh, those military operations have been massive in scale and very much underreported. They've involved the forced movement of not just hundreds of thousands, but millions of people who have been told to leave places when the Pakistani military goes in. It's an approach to counterinsurgency uh, that, uh, that uh, only a few states over history have ever been able to, su to successfully practice. And they, they've done it successfully. The number of terrorist attacks in Pakistan are down. The uh, actual control of the areas that the Pakistani mil military went into is by and large with the Pakistani authorities again. Uh, this did not come about through negotiations. Uh, so when you, it's always find it ironic when Pakistanis tell, so the only way to negotiate with the Afghan Taliban, or the only way to deal with the Afghan Taliban is through negotiations, not fighting, but they themselves on their own Taliban decided that the only way to deal with them was through fighting. And to date, I can't predict the future, but to date, they seem to have done it successfully and they certainly feel that they've done it successfully. It's a good point. So the Pakistanis advise Americans that the only way, and Afghans, that the only way to deal with the Afghan Taliban is through negotiations, mm -hmm. but they do not negotiate with the Pakistani Taliban. Instead, they have used force against them. Um, and I think that goes back to your question about what do they want? Because if what they want is the Islamic Emirate back, then they're not advising the effective tactic. They're advising a path to the to that possible outcome that you described. Yeah, it, seem, it seems that way to me. Uh, before I open it to the audience, just the latest. Uh, uh, so, uh, Prime Minister, uh, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo is scheduled to stop over in Islamabad on his way uh, to India uh, in the next few days. Today, he spoke to uh, Pakistan's uh, Prime Minister, uh, Imran Khan. I was very struck by the State Department's readout, which was very short and sounded to me a little terse. I'll just read it out to you so that you can decide whether my understanding is correct or not. Secretary Michael R. Pompeo spoke today with Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan and wished him success. Secretary Pompeo expressed his willingness to work with the new government towards a productive bilateral relationship. Secretary Pompeo raised the importance of Pakistan taking decisive action against all terrorists operating in Pakistan and its vital role in promoting the Afghan peace process. Why do I sense that, A, there was no congratulations on an electoral victory? Uh, B, there was no sort of details of, it was just a matter of fact, okay, you're prime minister, look forward to working with you, but what matters most to us are you are acting against all terrorists, and B, promoting the Afghan peace process. Um, I think that it'll be an interesting conversation when it takes place in Islamabad. Um, okay, let's just stop here and open it for discussion. Yes, sir, right here in the middle. Um, short questions, introduce yourself, ask the question. Um, speeches, send us an email. We'll invite you if we think you should be making speeches here. Hi, not a speech. Uh, Carl Golovin. I'm a special agent, U.S. Customs Service. I was a 9-11 responder, and I grew up lives on .net and 9-11truth.org. Uh, Mr. Sutton, I must issue uh, with your faith in the official conspiracy theory of 9-11. Um, there is abundant evidence that there were elements of controlled demolition and other explosions in all three World Trade Center towers, one, two, 
and 7. So what's your question, sir, that 9-11 didn't happen? Or didn't oh, it absolutely happen, happened. But my question, and I'll make it general so it's more comfortable for each of you. I would like a, an answer from each of you. Do, across the world, do intelligence and military entities cooperate with each other in periodically facilitating events that then can be blamed on a preferred enemy to yield subsequent uh, 17 years worth of uh, militarization and other activities. So do, do military and intelligence entities cooperate in false flag terrorism around the world? Yes or no? Uh, I think that, that we, all three of us can give a unified response to that uh, if, if, if both of you don't object. Um, I think that uh, too many people believe in too many conspiracy theories. Um, shall we uh, move on? Um, yes, sir, right here. Hi, Cam Erickson. I work at Six Point Strategies. My question and I think it's on a lot of people's minds here, is where do we go from here when it comes to Afghanistan? Who's in the driver's seat? I guess who's in the proverbial passenger seat along for the ride? And who's been left in the dust, if that's applicable? Thank you. Um, do you want to take one at a time? Yeah, let's take, uh, yeah, let us do that. Uh, would you like to take that, David? Well, I would say that uh, the people, the uh, more and more, it's the Afghan people, the Afghan government themselves, that are in the driver's seat. I've been associated with the formation of the Afghan security forces since 2002, when the first Americans arrived with under-equipped, underfunded, and the idea of, of teaching a few hundred Afghans how to be an army and hoping that that would succeed. Um, after a lot of false starts and a lot of mistakes, the Afghan security forces, um, the, uh, the army in particular, but also the police and the intelligence services are becoming more and more effective. They continue to rate as the most trusted and most admired institutions in the Afghan government, despite, uh, uh, despite uh, occasional, uh, occasional problems. Uh, they have faced a huge uh, threat, and uh, in my view, they are they are responding to that threat more and more effectively. And through that, uh, the Afghan state is, has the potential to get stronger. Uh, who's along for the ride? In some ways, it's the, Af it's the Afghan people writ large. They are still governed by a group of, this, in many ways, the same group of people who are at the Bonn One conference. Um, they, they, there's no real new leaders that have come up. Um, many of these uh, people were warlords uh, in, the, in the 1990s uh, and, and were defeated by the Taliban. And they have accumulated wealth and power, and they only use that wealth and power in order to maintain their own wealth and power. Um, and so I think the Afghan people are being taken for a ride by a lot of the people who are in nominal charge of, of various parts of the Afghan society. And who should, um, who, who, uh, where will it all end up? Uh, that is a, a huge question. Um, I, if you, I hope you can tell. I'm optimistic about the long term because of what I see as a real sea change in Afghanistan from the young people. But the potential for huge tragedy along the way, uh, unfortunately, remains. Okay. Um, yes, sir. Uh, Tom Timberg, consultant. You were talking about the fact the Trump administration has put some pressure on the, uh, Pakistan to cooperate, and uh, 
the problem has been that previous pressures haven't been sustained. Could you address the question of whether that is connected with the physical dependence of the United States on access through Pakistan? And uh, or, or perhaps that's, that's not a consideration that has effect, affected the uh, previous efforts. It, it is a consideration, uh, and in fact, the Pakistanis for over a year closed the ground lines of supply uh, in the 2012 and 13 period, which forced the U.S. and the other parts of the international community, the other, the other NATO countries, to rely on land routes of supply through the north and through air uh, routes. And while more expensive, we actually found that our troops uh, and our militaries were better supplied than, than they were before. They had more reliable supplies, but it was more expensive. Um, currently, uh, the number of forces in Afghanistan are much smaller than they were in that period of time. So the ability of Pakistan to turn, turn, turn on, turn off those uh, lines of communication is a factor, but it's not a, a determinative factor. I think there is some evidence, I certainly found this in my discussions with Pakistani military and security people, that they believed that cutting off those lines of communication would bring American efforts to their knees. When it didn't, they were surprised and they had to recalculate. That recalculation took some time. And then finally, I'll point out that uh, Pakistan itself, um, the Pakistan, and particularly the Pakistani military through its interest in the, in the transport sector, makes a huge amount of money out of these uh, lines of supply. So cutting them off costs them money as well. Um, and I also have a short comment on that, you know, uh, as somebody who sort of didn't grow up in America and read this great country's history, I've always wondered how important is this question for a nation that managed to supply West Berlin amid a Soviet uh, siege. Uh, I think that this is a kind of a bureaucratic question, you know, the bureaucrat who's in charge of supplies, for him this is the most important thing, or what's going to happen to those trucks that we sent through them? But very frankly, it should be approached in a strategic manner. And if strategic interests are different, then you should reach a different conclusion. It's for you to decide, but it has to be a strategic decision uh, rather than something that is dependent on logistics and tactics alone. Uh, and very frankly, when I was ambassador, there were moments when I heard American officials say to me uh, that uh, you should convey to your government that uh, we do have tremendous logistical capabilities that we can bring in uh, into play if we make that strategic choice. So please don't make us make that strategic choice. So I think that right now the Trump administration is actually spending more time on the strategic choice than on the logistical and tactical questions. Ambassador, some have wanted to answer or give a short answer to the earlier question. I think your question is a very good one because we need to look at realities that we face today. And I fully agree with what David said about how well we've done with the security forces and, uh, and how effective some of them are and, and um, so on and so forth. But I also want to add a couple of points. One, I think that we have, we're starting to lose the notion and concept of a big tent in Afghanistan. And it's been reduced to a small tent, which means that not everybody feels included in the decision-making processes and the deliberations uh, in the Afghan way that we have been used to or traditionally are used to and people feel comfortable with. I think we need to go back and revisit that and recreate a big tent in Afghanistan, but not with the same characters all the time. The characters have to 
be uh, you know they have to be based on it has to be based on merit and it has to be based on effectiveness it has to be based on uh, vision and and delivery and and things that matter consensus. to the afghan people and consensus and consensus and the other about. issue was how to build consensus and i think we are deviating from these very important notions the other issue is that we have a big challenge on our hands with what we sort of alluded to once or twice with the new uh, uh, the new regional and geopolitical uh, uh, environment that is shaping up. Uh, what has happened in, in 2001 at Bonn 1, there was consensus. Iran, international consensus. Russia, India, Pakistan all wanted the same thing. Yes, everybody. And they want years. different things now. Okay. Now we are seeing different demands, different plays, play, game plays, and the different agendas at play. Uh, and, and I think that this is, a, this is probably one of the biggest challenges that the United States is facing. So is the Afghan government and the Afghan people. And I am not sure exactly how it's going to play into things such as elections that are coming up in Afghanistan are supposed to come up, things such as uh, the peace process itself. How will this be in, uh, integrated within you know, these changes that are taking place? Uh, and pressures on Iran, for example, we, we haven't talked about that. Uh, there are so many other so, so there are more balls in the air. There are a lot places. of balls in the okay. air, yes. Let's have three or four questions together, and then we'll try and get answers to them. Uh, the lady at the back right there. I'm Shanaz Nafis from Voice of Mer Kurdu Service. And uh, my question is, uh, we all know that U.S. main concerns are um, the presence of terrorist organizations, including Haqqani Network in Pakistan, and Islamabad's role in Afghan peace process. So do you think the new government, while keeping in mind Imran Khan's sympathetic stance on Taliban, will deliver on what the U.S. demands, and what you forecast if Pakistan fails to deliver? Okay. Uh, yes, right there. Hi, Doug Brooks with the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, one thing that's been quite disappointing over the years is the, no is the small amount of uh, commerce that has gone on in the region, especially between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which should be natural trading partners. Uh, is there some way that this could be stimulated, and do you think that would make a difference? Uh, do any of the panels I think that would make a difference in terms of uh, a long-term peace agreement? Okay, I need a third question. I'll take it right here. Front row. Thank you, Don Daniel, Emeritus Professor at Georgetown. Uh, you know, Mr. Ambassador, you're part of the so-called consultant, and one of the things that I've always been wondering about is what's the role of China in all of this, and what can China do both to make it better or to make it worse? Okay. So we have three questions. Uh, both of you, go ahead. I have a couple of comments on some of them, but I'll come to them later as the host. Go ahead, David. I think as you as you heard in the State Department statement that Ambassador Haqqani read out just now, um, for the government of Imran Khan, uh, the real question is, does it, does it perform? The record of past Pakistani civilian governments uh, being able to make any significant difference on the issues uh, that were raised is um, very poor. Uh, they haven't been able to do it. Will Imran Khan be different? Uh, a lot of people hope so. He made a statement the other day, uh, I think his inauguration speech about his uh, willingness to talk to India. There's some fun, if, if he really can do that, and the prior prime minister tried to talk to India and the military shut him down, uh, if he can do that, then maybe there is uh, something that can be done. But the past evidence 
leads me to doubt uh, that we will see those changes, but I would love to be proved wrong. Um, uh, in terms of the uh, role of China, uh, the Chinese have generally played a very behind-the-scenes role. Uh, they've tried to facilitate talks. Uh, they've tried to, they've given some assistance, but actually not very much. Uh, one of their main concerns has been the presence in Afghanistan in the border regions of, uh, of uh, Chinese Uyghurs, who they feel are a security threat to them. Um, uh, the Chinese announced uh, and are carrying out a very ambitious program with Pakistan called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. When that was originally announced, there were a lot of ties to Afghanistan, and the corridor itself was designed to go much closer to Afghanistan. As a result of discussions and disagreements inside the Pakistani authorities, that corridor was moved over. Uh, and so the impact on Afghanistan has been less. So my own view is the Chinese could do a lot more, uh, but uh, partly because of their, the importance of the Pakistan relationship to them, they've been reluctant to do more, uh, in both in terms of assistance and politically. Just quickly, on Imran Khan, we, we know the record uh, that existed pre prior to becoming prime minister, the things he has said at times. Uh, the hope in Afghanistan is uh, that uh, he realizes that there is an opportunity, uh, that, that we could make a difference in relationship in, in you know, how this region can be managed differently. Uh, and not using terrorism uh, as a means of achieving your geopolitical goals in uh, uh, supporting terrorist groups that uh, are not good for Afghanistan or anyone. Uh, so we hope that, that that realization exists. At the same time, I think that um, Afga Afghans, at least, and anyone else who, who studies this closely, knows that the Afghan file is not really in the civilian government's hand. It hasn't been for a long, long time. Yes, civilian governments can you know, provide some input, some ex express themselves one way or the other, uh, and at times they have paid a, a price as well for being somewhat more independent than uh, than they should be. And so uh, I hope that Imran Khan um, and the civilian establishment as a whole, including, uh, you know, uh, Pakistanis who are uh, open to better relations and a change in the in the paradigm that has existed for so long that they could maybe come to some kind of terms within Pakistan with the military. But I'm not exactly sure if the dynamics exist and that will happen or not. As far as China is concerned, I agree with David. China is an important player. Um, China, we, we see China as having really changed over time in terms of how it views the region in Afghanistan. It has a better understanding of what is happening. For China, what is happening on the border with Afghanistan and Pakistan, with the Uyghurs uh, and the Muslim minorities that exist there and live there is an issue. Uh, you know, it's a very controversial issue. Uh, but um, at least from an Afghanistan point of view, we have done everything possible to help them deal with security issues in that part of uh, uh, South Asia in, in our border with China. Uh, and obviously, China has had a special relationship with Pakistan all along. But they, we do see China as uh, being a country that could play a positive role, I think, in, in a constructive role uh, as a facilitator, as long as they're open to listening to all sides and seeing, you know, and making sure that they see other perspectives as well.
Uh, the question about commerce remained unanswered, so I'll try and attempt an answer to that. Uh, Pakistan has so far looked at commerce uh, with its neighbors in particular in the strategic context. That's why Pakistan has not opened trade with India, although that could have been a big uh, a sort of export market as well as a source for relatively cheaper imports. Same applies to Afghanistan. Uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan has hinted at having a different uh, view of it. I hope he does. Many countries actually disentangle strategic and uh, uh, sort of conflict issues uh, and political issues from commerce. Uh, Pakistan does need more trade because its overall trade profile is much poorer than a nation of 200 million people should have. Only $22 billion of exports uh, last year, and not a very significant amount. Uh, so if, if the strategic decision is made to stop thinking of commerce only as an uh, extension of strategic relationships, then yes, the Pakistan-Afghan trade and the Pakistan-Indian trade could actually increase significantly. I just add a coda to that. Um, over the last three or four years, Afghanistan's trade with Central Asia has risen sharply, particularly with Uzbekistan. The new Uzbek government over the last couple of years has done a great job, actually, of opening up trade routes that were previously constricted for political reasons. Uh, it's starting from a small base. That increase in trade ties to the north of Afghanistan is something that does hold some promise for the future. Absolutely. And Pakistan, by the way, has one of the poorest records in having high amounts of trade with its neighbors, uh, except China, whereas most nations actually have their neighbors as amongst their top trading partners. And so that is a function of, and if you're, if you're interested, there's a whole chapter on that in my new book, Reimagining Pakistan. I had to make a plug for it, didn't I? Uh, but 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 there's a whole thing about how that whole, the, the, how military strategic considerations have always taken priority, even on matters such as this. Final three questions, uh, gentlemen. There, uh, here, and here. Jack Pagano. TV executive, been COO of two major television stations in Afghanistan, a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel, been in Afghanistan 11 years. End of the day, it's all about jobs. If you give people jobs, if the haves are way having a lot and the have-nots have nothing, you create jobs, you have peace, hope, and a freedom. We're not doing that. What can we do? Okay. So... Stan Morgan, excuse me, Stan Morgenstein, I'm retired. Um, I've got uh, two quick questions. One is I've not heard any reference to the Taliban's uh, commitment to Sharia law as the basis for any government. And uh, as they look at the up-and-coming um, negotiations, how do each of you see that playing into it? Second thing is from a, a strategic standpoint from the United States, foreign policy and military perspective. We've got existential threats from Russia. Uh, we've got existential threats from China, both from the standpoint of cyber as well as physical military. Um, should we and can we afford to continue to be involved in military operations in countries like Afghanistan um, do they represent an important enough piece of our international trade 
or security that we continue to do that in light of these existential threats. Last question. Thank you. Thanks for the panel. My name is Li Yang. Uh, so the combination of those uh, previous questions, and I want to expand further, whether the United States should re-examine our policies and uh, our effort to solve the peace, whether it's in the United States or abroad. I think we have a problem of military industrial complex, and people are complaining about it already, and we know that Vietnam is not a success and now we know that Korea reunification is also people's wish. And then in the United States, you have mass incarceration. So why don't we put the effort in the United States to establish our trustworthy or our um, officials and a social program and let people live happily both inside the United States and overseas okay, instead thank of conflict? You. We, we get the question. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, uh, do you want to go first, uh, Ambassador Samad? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm qualified enough to answer some of the questions, but as far as jobs are concerned... Don't worry, that doesn't stop anybody else in Washington from doing that. <laughs> I shouldn't stop you. But as far as jobs are concerned, uh, yes, of course, jobs matter. And, and they do more so now than they did over the last few years because there are less of them and the economy is not doing as well in some regards, uh, especially in terms of investment. Uh, there's money that is flowing out, more money flowing out than coming in. Uh, Afghanistan's economy is very uh, much uh, uh, you know, re reliant on foreign assistance, uh, and dependent on foreign as assistance, and we need to do something to reduce that dependency over time. Um, all of that is impacted first and foremost by security. I mean, as long as security is challenged the way it is right now, look at the way suicide bombers go into soft targets and blow themselves up and, and dozens of people are dead. Uh, they go into towns and cities now and, and try to uh, portray spectacular attacks and, and, and that's part of the fear factor, it's part of the psychological warfare and all of that. So, so it will have an impact on the economy, unfortunately. There are a lot of Afghans leaving the country or wishing to leave the country. That is not a good trend. So the government has to do everything possible to reverse all of this. And one of those uh, items that is, in my opinion, should be high on their agenda is to fight corruption more effectively. Uh, and, and for those who know and have worked in Afghanistan, uh, that, uh, that issue is, is still uh, hurting us. Has not been has not been dealt with as as best as possible, uh, and I think that we also need to make sure that uh, we can bring back some investment to the country somehow, and bring the money back into the country. Uh, as far as uh, Sharia uh, existentialist threats, um, um, Sharia means Islamic law, and so. An Islamic nation, Islamic country, uh, decides for itself how to frame it within its laws and, and body of laws. In Afghanistan, that issue has been resolved within the constitution, and it's not an issue. But then you, you have the Taliban who say that their version, interpretation of Sharia is somewhat different. 
and that their application of Sharia is done somewhat differently. And so that is a huge question for Afghan society. And, uh, and I think that um, uh, Afghan society feels comfortable with, from what we see, Afghan society as a whole feels comfortable with what is coded within the Constitution, how it's framed within the Constitution that was adopted in 2004. As far as the Taliban version of Sharia is concerned, we also have very good, a very good sense of what this means because they ruled over a big chunk of Afghanistan from 1994 5 until 2001 and how they applied that. And I don't think that there is an appetite in, Af in Afghanistan overall. I'm not saying there are pockets of people who probably uh, won't mind that kind of interpretation, but overall, there is no appetite for that. And that might become a negotiating issue. And I think that if and when we reach a point where, you know, when we will be ha discussing specifics, that I am sure that the Taliban will bring this up. Um, actually, uh, yeah, before you come, David, let me just have a quick uh, shot at that. I did refer to it without using the word Sharia. I meant the Taliban's ideology. That's what I meant, their interpretation of Sharia. And I think it's going to be, it has always been a deal breaker. Uh, in any attempt to negotiate with them, it's going to be a deal breaker now. Um, on the subject of jobs, I agree. Uh, you know, the Afghan economy has to stop being a rentier economy, a, a totally dependent economy. Uh, but then there is definitely also the factor that uh, the Taliban who are recruiting on, on the Pakistani side are actually providing jobs to the guys who are becoming Taliban and going as expatriate labor into Afghanistan to actually fight. So, so, so uh, the security dimension should be focused on uh, if there was greater security, uh, it, wouldn't not, it wouldn't be just the Afghan government, but Afghan private uh, uh, enterprise that would be employing a lot of people as well. And that would be, and to your question, sir, which also resonated here, should the United States just sort of retract because you have existential threats? Uh, just because you have uh, another nature of threat doesn't mean that the threat that already exists ceases to exist. So terrorism and Islamist extremism also is a threat to American interest while at the same time as Russia and China are becoming threats, you have multiple threats. Uh, I think that most of us are trained to uh, chew gum and walk straight at the same time. And similarly, in foreign policy and national security, we can deal with more than one threat at the same time instead of saying, oops, this one has arisen now, withdraw everybody, let's go fight on this front. But David will have more to say on that. Just a couple of words for drawing to the end of time. Uh, I agree very much that the United States did not do a very good job in the economic area of helping Afghanistan develop. And in many ways, that was a complete failure on the part of our aid efforts in Afghanistan. They were uh, built by and often for a group of NGOs, non-governmental organizations that often consume 30 to 60 or even 70% of the funds that are allocated in their overhead. Uh, so you hear all these large figures about amounts of money that have been spent by the United States in Afghanistan. But if you go back and look where that money ended up, you'll find uh, huge amounts of it. In some cases, a majority of it ended up in the pockets of consultants who live in McLean, of NGO executives who have million, six, five or six million McLean dollars. McLean and other suburbs, and other suburbs, Five or six million dollar <laughs> homes in California and elsewhere, have beautiful offices in Washington. Uh, we did have one program that was extraordinarily successful, but then was destroyed by 
by bureaucratic infighting and, uh, and abetted by, I think, some small-minded efforts in Congress. That was, it was called the Task Force for Business Stability Operations. The work that it did is actually still paying off in real jobs in areas such as uh, information technology, uh, in <clears throat> broader commerce issues, rather than just uh, paying people to go out and dig ditches that then get filled in and get rebuilt again, which doesn't really build a sustainable economy. So it's the, the way the United States can help uh, an economy of a, in a conflict society is still, in my mind, a very open question. And not only have we not done a good job in Afghanistan, we haven't done a good job in Yemen, the Democratic Republic of Cong Congo. You can't find a place where the United States has done a good job, unfortunately. It would be great if they could, and if somebody knows better, I want to hear that afterwards. The question, I just want to reinforce what Ambassador Connie said, because the question about whether the United States should be in Afghanistan and what the stakes are, and are our investments worth it or not, is one that we need to continue to ask. But the United States, mm -hmm. for its role in the world, its leadership role in the world, we can't marginalize someplace, a place that we have already spent billions of dollars, where in the 1980s, by supporting, in many cases, the wrong parts of the Mujahideen with the most amount of money, and then pulling out in 1989 by, by underfunding our original efforts in Afghanistan and then setting these deadlines, the United States has helped create a big mess. If we walk away and say, oh, too hard for us, can't do it, then Russia, China, or any other country that sees us as a threat will say, hey, all we have to do is outweigh the United States on the big issues as well as on this one. So I'm obviously very convinced that we need to stay in Afghanistan, stay the course, work with the Afghan people, and I believe there will be success, even though it's not going to be tomorrow. Thank you very much for those final words, David Sedney. Thank you, Ambassador Omar Samad. And thank you to a very good audience. Thank you all.